welcome to Autism in the Adult podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Teresa Regan, an adult neuropsychologist. I specialize in brain behavior relationships for those 14 and older. I'm the parent of an amazing teen on the autism spectrum and a certified autism specialist. I am deeply grateful to bring validation, hope, and purpose to individuals and their families living on the autism spectrum. With this mission at its core, I founded and currently direct the OSF Healthcare Adult Diagnostic Autism Center in Central Illinois. My books include Understanding Autism in Adults and Aging Adults and Understanding Autistic Behaviors. For more information and to join my online community for free, visit www.adultandgeriatricautism.com. Please join me in helping individuals, couples, and families thrive while living life on the autism spectrum. Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Teresa Regan, and the topic of today's podcast is autism diagnosis in adults. One of the things we're going to do today is bust the myth that if autism is a developmental neurologic condition, we automatically can assume that the condition has been detected and accurately identified in childhood. So this would be great if it were true, but it's just not true. So there are many people who are missing a diagnosis or who are misdiagnosed. There are so many reasons that a diagnosis is important in adulthood. I'll put some links below to get you started, but the focus of today is going to be about why are we missing autism in adults? Well, one of the first reasons is that the diagnostic criteria were not published and identified until the 1980s. And since that time, of course, there have been some adjustments as our understanding and awareness through research and experience of what autism consists of, you know, has grown. But the very first publication that's pretty consistent with our current conceptualization was in the 80s. So think of how many people went through much of their life or a good chunk of their life not even living in a society that had any awareness of autism. Even given that it was published in the 80s, we sure had a long way to go to improve our detection and conceptualization and identifying children. The CDC even published this year that about 25% of elementary school children are being missed in the detection process. So we even need to improve our detection of autism in children and so much more for adults that we serve and that we want to support well. Some estimates are that only 3 to 10% of adults on the spectrum actually are correctly identified. So no matter how you slice it, most adults who are autistic are not correctly identified, and that creates some problems. So in addition to people who are missing a diagnosis... There are also many people who are misdiagnosed with other conditions, usually mental health conditions. Now, why would autism be misdiagnosed in the first place? Well, I'm going to say a couple things about that. So 
It was in the late 1800s that as a culture, we first realized that the brain could impact our thinking skills, our intellect, our cognition, our ability to problem solve things on a daily basis. So that's when we began to really um, build a culture that could support individuals with intellectual disability, and this is rooted in brain function. So there is this realization that we could help support individuals with an intellectual disability. We could help enhance their knowledge, but that no type of punishment or reward or enriched education was going to completely change the way their brain was able to function. So from the late 1800s to the current time, we see that it's taken a long time for us to develop policies and laws that protect the vulnerable individuals who have this type of disability. So in the 1970s, there was the law about special education services in school. Um, And that's where we see that policy and law start to come together to support the individualized needs of these students. And there are also laws in our community that support them because they're unable to independently maintain gainful employment in a manner to support themselves. So there are actually policies and laws that identify at what cognitive level is someone likely going to need protection and assistance. So as a community, we've really grown in understanding that the brain impacts thinking skills. And from the late 1800s all the way to the 1970s, we've kind of shifted as a culture where this is a well-known concept and idea, and it's become integrated into law and policy. But guess what we're not really up to date with? We're not up to date with understanding that the brain is also at the root of certain neurologic behavioral patterns. Certain parts of our behavior, our emotional expression, and our personality have roots in the brain. Not that we're robots and the brain just kind of takes over, but we do gravitate towards certain behavioral patterns based on how our brain is wired. And this is not a new concept If you think about someone who has Alzheimer's disease or a traumatic brain injury, you can tell that we actually understand that behavior can change when there's a change in the brain. But what we're not really good at is thinking about some people are born with neurologic brain systems that connect in a way that produce this behavioral pattern, this difficulty with staying calm and focused and a tendency to get stuck and fixated on one thing. And I'm not going to go through all the characteristics of autism here, but just this concept that brain development and the way the connections are developing in the brain will impact behavioral patterns. And as a culture, we're not to the point where we understand that and we've integrated it we are much more likely to focus on parenting techniques and consequences as being the approach to behavioral patterns that are difficult. And it's not that consequences and parenting strategies aren't good. They're very good. But what we have to know is that when there's a neurologic pattern, parenting is not going to change the neurology 
of the brain. We do want to have as much positive influence as we can on brain development to help the person reach their full potential, to really influence things for good outcomes. But the individual with the autistic uh, developmental pattern that has this neurologic manifestation and behavior, they're still going to continue to have that type of uh, brain connection through aging. Now, certainly we can look at some examples of when people feel like things really turned around for them and they don't have these manifestations in adulthood. I think what's interesting about that is we talk about it because it's really uh, less typical. What's more typical is that you can see this change over time. You can see some uh, improvement and stabilization. And yet throughout the lifespan, there's some manifestation of this neural connection as related to behavior and emotion and personality. So it's important for us, whether we are in healthcare, in education, whether we are in a workplace, whether we are mental health professionals, to understand that the adult that we're working with may have behavioral manifestations that are neurologically based. So having said that, let me go to the second reason that autism is often misdiagnosed. There are seven diagnostic criteria for autism spectrum disorder. And this is where we get some of our pattern because the first three criteria are required and the four criteria that are subsequent, these are repetitive stereotyped behavioral patterns Of those four, only two are required. So you will get people who manifest different patterns of how those seven criteria are met or not met. And you may have someone with very strong sensory symptoms, or you may have someone with no sensory symptoms, and they'll still meet those criteria. So because there are seven criteria, and in addition, there are many common Uh, co-occurring issues that are not part of the criteria. For example, sleep disturbance is very common in the spectrum. What happens is you sometimes get separate diagnoses for each little piece of the whole pattern that makes up autism. And, And so let me paint a picture about that for you. We're going to talk about the parable of the elephant. And this relates to misdiagnosis of other conditions for someone who's on the autism spectrum. If you've ever heard of the parable of the elephant, this might really seem familiar to you, or this might be new, but the parable itself is over 2,000 years old, and there are a few different variations across cultures. But in essence, the parable states, uh, there was an ancient village in which the people had never seen an elephant. And so when someone brought an elephant to town, it was a big deal, and people flocked to the center of the village to see this new creature that they had never seen before. And a group of the individuals who wanted to experience what an elephant is, well, well, these individuals were blind. And so they said, well, we can't see the elephant, but we can perceive the elephant through touch. So as a group, they made their way to the center of town and they decided that they would each stand in a place 
around the elephant. So they made a circle around the elephant and they put their hand out wherever they were standing so they could perceive, so they could take in what this new creature of an elephant was like. So the first person to put her hand out touched the trunk and said, oh, an elephant is like a snake. It's windy and thick and it has ridges on it. And I can really perceive that an elephant is like a snake. And the person next to her just thought this was ridiculous because he said, I'm standing right here and I have my hand out and I can tell you it's nothing like a snake. It's like a fan. It's thin and wavy and broad. And here this gentleman was touching the ear of the elephant and he concluded an elephant is like a fan. Well, you can see how this just continued on and on around the elephant because the next person put his hand out and said, no, no, no. An elephant is tall and broad and wide. I can't even put my hands out to reach each end. An elephant is like a wall. No, said the person next to, next to him. She said, I'm, I'm touching it right now. It's right in front of me. It's more like a pillar or a tree. It's thick and long and broad and it just goes straight up. And here she's touching the leg of the elephant. Well, the next person was very confused as well and said, no, not at all. I'm touching the elephant. It's right in front of me. And it's windy and, and corded. It's thin. And it, it really feels more like a rope. An elephant is like a rope. But of course, he was touching the tail. The next person that talked said, no, not like a rope at all. I'm touching it and it's it's really got a very hard texture. It doesn't bend at all. It's pointed on the end. It's smooth. I would say an elephant is like a spear. And this person had been touching the tusk. What happens is we see that they all identified what was right in front of them, this piece of the, of the bigger picture. And while all of them were correct about what was right in front, they were all wrong about what an elephant is. An elephant is not like a rope. An elephant is not like a spear or a snake. It's all of those things. It's all of those elements. So what we see happening in autism diagnosis is that because there's a neurologic cluster of various features, we see that along the lifespan, people accumulate diagnoses that match one little piece of the criteria. So for example, everyone on the autism spectrum will struggle in some way with emotional and behavioral regulation, the ability to stay calm and centered. And for some people, this looks like fight mode, where they have this explosion of emotion and they just are labile or tearful or angry. Well, sometimes these individuals carry a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, but that's just one piece of the autism puzzle. Other people are emotionally uncentered and manifest that with hiding, with flight, with withdrawal. 
I'm going to go to my room. I'm going to quit this position. I'm going to quit this conversation. And others really show a freeze reaction, like I'm staring at the wall for hours and I'm physically present, but I'm just completely shut down. I'm that dysregulated. So these features can be diagnosed differently. So whereas the fight reaction may lead to a diagnosis of bipolar, the freeze reaction might lead to a diagnosis of non-epileptic seizures or dissociation, uh, where I'm physically present, but I'm really not mentally present. It can look like depression, that someone's flat and isn't engaging in things. The withdrawal can look like depression as well, or it could look like anxiety. Part of the spectrum, too, is someone may have a very flat emotional affect in their face and voice. They might really cling to rigid ritualistic behaviors that are repetitive, so it may look like OCD, and perhaps they're depressed with this flat emotional tone. Common misdiagnoses that I have seen include anything in the schizophrenic realm, anything in the bipolar realm, really any of the personality disorders, including borderline personality, narcissistic personality. Um, Eating disorders are commonly attributed because people on the spectrum can have really rigid ritualistic approaches to eating. There are so many different things that could be diagnosed from one little piece of this constellation of characteristics that would yield the autism diagnosis. So for this podcast, what we're communicating is that it's a myth that autism is a childhood condition. It's a condition across the lifespan, and it impacts all generations of people in our communities. It's a myth that if it's present, it will be correctly diagnosed in childhood. It really is not. It's v- the individual is at great risk for being treated for conditions they don't have and for not being supported for the condition that they do struggle with or they do present with. One of the reasons for this misdiagnosis or missing diagnoses can be that we're just not good at understanding that neurologic conditions of the brain impact personality and behavioral patterns and social interaction. We also all have our little niche, our specialization. And when we see someone who presents with difficulty within our niche, we might label that as the diagnosis. So we might label it as attention deficit disorder or OCD. We might label it as narcissism or borderline personality, but we're not looking at the whole picture of the seven criteria. It's when we look at the big picture that we see this is a neurologic pattern. There are sensory processing issues. There are stereotyped movements. This is not one little piece. It's this big picture neurologic diagnosis. And I know what this is. And I can really help you understand what it is. I can make specific recommendations. We can help you have better outcomes. So that's where we want to move as a community, that we understand that many adults in our communities are missing a correct diagnosis, that we know how to look at the big picture, not just the little piece that's in front of us. And we know that 
referring individuals to specialists can really yield a lot of very specific recommendations, things that will help people have better outcomes. I am so glad you joined me today for this really important topic, and we're going to do more podcasts about specific issues of why a diagnosis is important at any age. I hope you join me again.